Hey everyone, welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. What's going on in health and wellness this week? We've got the latest info and tips to help you take care of your body, your brain, and your well-being. Living a longer, healthier, and happier life. Sounds good, right? And you probably try to work out when you can and eat healthy-ish on most days. But what if there are some things that could help, but they're halfway around the world? Our next guest, neurosurgeon and award-winning medical journalist, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, looks into that in his new series, Chasing Life, which premieres on CNN on April 13th. In the series, he travels the globe, going to Bolivia, India, Italy, Japan, Norway, and Turkey. His goal? To learn how people in those nations build life rich in wellness and meaning, and what might work here, too. Now, you might be used to seeing Dr. Gupta in his scrubs reporting on the latest medical news, but this series is different. From forest bathing in Japan to learning an ancient martial art in India, he goes out there, literally. Dr. Gupta, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. How did you pick the countries in Chasing Life? What were you looking for in choosing where to go? When we started off, we we had a list of dozens and dozens of countries. Um, We we knew that there was so much of certain countries had to offer in, in terms of health practices and things that we think we could benefit from. So the narrowing down process uh, took a little bit of time. But, you know, Bolivia, for example, um, we knew we'd been hearing of this indigenous tribe living in the deep in the Amazon rainforest that had recently been, uh, we've been told, had the healthiest hearts in the world, had really very little evidence of heart disease. Uh, that was fascinating to me. I'm I have a strong family history of heart disease. Uh, why do certain places, especially a place like this that doesn't even really have a healthcare system, how do they how do they have virtually no heart disease? Uh, that was something I wanted to see. Uh, Japan, you know, is one of these countries that's considered one of the most stressed countries in the world. Um, they they have um, had a increase in suicides among young people. They have a term now in Japan called karoshi which means illness or, or death from overwork. How did this country become so stressed? What does stress really mean in this context? And you know, what can we learn? Is there a cautionary tale in there for the United States, uh, also other countries in the world? Uh, Italy was the healthiest country. Uh, Norway, the happiest country. Turkey is a country that's one of the largest producers of legal opium in the world, and yet they export almost all of it. So how do they control their, their own pain? Um, you know, all, all these countries were picked for, for India. I had to go. I, I'm Indian. I, I, I've been hearing about some of these these techniques and some of these sort of more ancient traditions for a long time, with, even with my own family. I wanted to go see it for myself. And, and as you said, see what works, what we can show to be true and bring some of those stories back. Are there common themes that you noticed in the countries that you went to or a lot of them? I think, I think th- there were some broad themes. You know, I think, for example, in the United States, we're, we're you know, we think of health and, and taking care of ourselves. We think of it as something that we have to do versus something that, if we do, will bring us not only health, but also happiness and joy and make us more productive and better son, better daughter, better, you know, wife, husband, partner, whatever it might be. It's just more a, a part of people's lives over there to think about health. How they approach their lunch isn't just, I need to put calories into my body right now, there's a real function to the food. Uh, there's, there's a thoughtfulness about it. 
I think that was a big thing. Uh, I think the other the other idea is that how social cohesion and being living in in real social sort of communities does make a difference for people's health and happiness. And we find social cohesion was something that kept coming up again and again, true human interactions. And we've seen examples of that in in this country as well, where it's really tight-knit social communities, despite having risk factors for, for heart disease and dementia and stroke, had lower rates of those things in part because of the tight social fabric. So those were some broad themes that we saw um, around the world. Some of the things you cover are pretty unique to those countries. What were some of the most surprising practices that you encountered? Well, you know, um, in Japan, um, one of the things that uh, I thought was, was interesting was just their focus on, on the hot baths. Um, you know, this is something I didn't know before going into into the, that particular story. But in the United States, for example, if you go to hot tubs or whatever, um, you can't have the hot tubs above 104 degrees. That's the, the maximum temperature uh, that's allowed. In Japan, we were in hot baths that were close to 115 or even 117 degrees, which is, is I know it's, you know, 9, 10 degrees hotter, but it makes all the difference. And yet there's a, there's a huge, it's a huge part of the culture especially in parts of northern Japan, and something that they very much associate with longevity. I think part of it is probably the hot bath. Part of it is the intense focus that you have just on thinking about your body, thinking about yourself, taking the time to do something like that. Because they're so stressed in Japan, um, there's been a real uh, focus on all these various strategies to relieve stress in big cities like Tokyo. Um, Everything from rage rooms to to owl cafes, uh, and I will tell you, not all these sort of stress-leaving techniques work for everyone. Some work much better for some people versus versus others, but you can see how a, how a culture sort of develops. I think in India, you know, this, just how they approach food overall. There's all these things that are so fascinating about India with Ayurvedic medicine, the massage, the yoga, everything, but how they approach food, I thought, was was really eye-opening for me. This idea that you know, you, you really do think of, as Hippocrates said, food can be your medicine. Most countries around the world, they, they use palate as the primary driver of how a diet is created. Um, but if you think about function first and then palate, it, it seems to make a, a, a huge difference. And it's something I, that I've definitely incorporated into my own life. What are some things that you think people in the U.S. might want to try from the various cultures that you uh, visited in this series? I'll give you a quick example. Because I'm a surgeon, I wanted to go spend time with, with surgeons as well, people who are trained in the scientific method like me to see how they approach some of these different types of therapies. Spent time with these heart surgeons in Istanbul. Uh, and uh, Turkey is a country that, as I said, grows most opium, exports almost all of it. In the ICU, after open heart surgery, you had these surgeons who were not giving any narcotics to their patients. After, you know, opening someone's chest and doing bypass surgery, uh, you know, narcotics are always given in the stage, but they weren't giving narcotics. They were using other strategies, including music therapy, which, you know, I thought, how is that possibly going to work? You know, this person's going right. to wake up from anesthesia, screaming in pain. And I watched as the person wakes up again, no narcotics. And the surgeons themselves are the ones actually playing these instruments. 
for the patient. Wow. And you watched the blood pressure, heart rate. Patient actually raised his hand and started sort of semi-conducting the music. You know, you could hear it. And he had a breathing tube in still, was still waking up from anesthesia. But it was, a, it was an idea that, that it's not so much treating the pain as it is treating one's perception of pain, which can make such a big difference in terms of what people need or want for their pain. You know, I saw one patient, but these surgeons tell me that that's how they've been taking their patients now for years in this particular hospital in Istanbul. So um, things like that, I think, are you know really interesting. If, if you're being prescribed new medications, really understanding, do you need it? How much of that is based on your physiology and how much of that is based on the perception of, of some sort of problem. And pain is probably one of the best examples. A lot of these countries are going through fast changes that can come with a more Western lifestyle, like less healthy food, more time sitting, more stress, and as you mentioned earlier, more isolation and loneliness. Was there a tension between the traditions you observed for this series and modern life, or are they sort of finding ways to blend it in? No question, there is a real tension. Take Japan, even within Japan. You know, you have the mainland of Japan considered one of the most stressed places, you know, stressed countries in the world. And then you have this, this you have Okinawa, you know, an island off the coast of Japan where you still have some of the highest concentration of centenarians anywhere on the planet. But even Okinawa is changing. You know, you're starting to see fast food restaurants and other things start to creep in. One of the reasons we really wanted to spend time in India was because Kerala, which is on the southwest coast of India, is is almost a country in and of itself that has been somewhat insulated from a lot of these other changes. They, they, they do not want to have fast food restaurants. They want to have a full embracing of the Ayurvedic diet and Ayurvedic practices over there. In Italy, you know, clearly you see a lot of changes, but, you know, they, they've been so aggressive about trying to, to advocate for, instead of fast food, slow food. There's a whole slow food movement that's going on over there. So I think uh, to your question, there's a lot of competing pressures now that are driven by, you know, uh, typically by, you know, convenience and by, by profit. Um, but there are, you know, there's still resistance to those things being embraced in some of these places around the world. That's fascinating. You already do a lot to be well. Obviously, you're a, you're a doctor and, and you know a lot about how to keep yourself healthy. But have you taken on any of the practices you learned about in this reporting in your own life? Yeah, I, I, I have. I, um, I think we've, we've um, started approaching things differently, and, and it's become a family affair. You know, I, I think part of making these things work, even though everything doesn't work for everybody, but part of making these things work is to be able to do it with other, with other people. Um, and, and one of the things I will tell you, I think, you, you know, having trained in neurosurgery and going through training, working, you know, over 100 hours a week for a good chunk of my training you, you, it, it can be very isolating. You just don't have a lot of time to, to be particularly social, have a lot of friends, things like that. Having social time was really seen as an extravagance or a luxury, right? Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think social cohesion, being so protective against some of the stressors of life, was something that I, I you know, really took to heart and have started to, to incorporate into my own life. So spending... Uh, time, you know, really nurturing friendships and spending time with my friends, uh, understanding their lives, letting them in on my life, whatever it might be. I feel good when I do it. And I, I've always felt good when I did it, but I think now I have a better sort of, um, 
understanding of it. I think sometimes when I understand why something works, I'm much more likely to stick with it. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that came out in Japan was this, this whole notion of, of forest bathing and, and being outside in nature. And again, I, I've always felt good when I can, you know, breathe in the aroma of the forest. I knew in a way that it was special in some way or just in terms of how it made me feel. But now I understand why it is so good. I think one of the biggest changes has probably been food, though. You know, we've, we've always tried to eat a healthy diet, although, trust me, ask 100 doctors what a healthy diet is and you'll get, you'll get 200 answers, right? I mean, it's very hard to define exactly what a healthy diet is. But, uh, but you go to these places where they do think of the functionality of food. They think of food as medicine, which, by the way, doesn't mean at all, as you know, that it doesn't taste great. It can taste great. I've seen the value in, in all sorts of other things. You know, I try never to eat my meals alone anymore. I try and do something with my hands every day. I try and, you know, just sort of work on something with my hands. I, I, the idea of completing something, completing a project of some sort on a regular basis, I find to be very, very um, good for my body and my brain. I, I do try and unplug uh, on, a, on a regular basis um, and let people know that I'm going to be unplugged and you know what, the world will be fine. If I'm unplugged for a while, it'll be okay. And I, I find that, you know, after the first hour or so of feeling antsy, I feel really good when I unplug. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that I've started to do differently. That was something that they, they culturally do in Norway all the time. Um, to spend that time truly unplugged. Right. Well, it's so fascinating to look at what other people in other countries do to thrive. And it's going to be a really fascinating series. Uh, Dr. Gupta, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Are you taking your medicine like you're supposed to? It's easy to make mistakes, especially with prescription drugs. So how can you be sure you're doing it right? Before you leave the pharmacy, check the label and the bag. Make sure the medicine really is for you and what's in there is what you're supposed to be getting. Does the packaging look familiar on your refill? If not, ask the pharmacist if there's been a change. You'll also want to know you're getting the best price. A generic version may cost less than your copay on the name brand, so don't be afraid to ask if one is available and okay for you to take. And while it's fine to comparison shop some medications, try to stick with one pharmacy or mail order vendor. They'll have all your meds on record and can spot potential interaction problems, especially if you get prescriptions from more than one doctor. Plus, if you're with a chain pharmacy and something comes up while you're out of town, the local store can help you out. Once you get a medication home, take a minute to read the material that comes with it. Yeah, there's a lot of fine print, but you'll get lots of important details, like when to take it and how much. Pro tip, if you have several pills you need to take once, twice, or more a day, invest in a pill box with the days of the week written on it. Or if you use your phone to keep your life on track, download a pill reminder app. The package information, or sometimes a sticker on the bottle, will also let you know if you need to take the medication with food or on an empty stomach. And you'll find out whether or not you can drink alcohol while on this medication. If you pair booze with cold remedies, it can make you super sleepy. It can also interact with other medications and damage your liver. Your pharmacist can give you the scoop on foods or drinks that don't work well with certain meds, like cholesterol drugs and grapefruit juice, or green leafy veggies and blood thinners. Read the info on side effects, too. Some drugs make you more likely to get a sunburn. Others can make you dizzy to the point that you shouldn't drive. 
The statement, do not operate heavy machinery while on this medication, doesn't just apply to bulldozers and tractors. It also includes cars. And at least 200 medications can lead to depression or thoughts of suicide. If you feel seriously down for more than a couple of weeks, let your doctor know. You might be able to take a lower dose or switch to another medication. If it's time to take your meds, the pills may literally be hard to swallow. But don't cut or break them in half unless your doctor says it's okay. They may be coded to bind two medications together or to release the medicine into your system slowly. This protects your stomach. If the doc says it's okay to split a pill, wait until you're ready to take it so it won't break down due to heat or humidity. You can get a pill cutter at the pharmacy or ask your doctor about scored medications that are easier to break. And speaking of heat and humidity, your bathroom medicine cabinet may not be the best storage option. Steam from the shower and sinks can damage pills. Look for a cool dark spot like a pantry or closet. Some medications, like insulin, have to be kept in the fridge. And if you're taking something like insulin or blood pressure medications, you may need to check in with your doctor every few months. Don't skip these appointments. This is how your doctor knows if what you're taking works. Your prescription meds will have dosing instructions on them, but if you're taking an over-the-counter pain reliever, be careful not to overdo it. Follow the instructions on the label. Kids' doses should be based on their weight, not their age. And never mix different types like ibuprofen and naproxen. That can damage your liver or kidneys and lead to internal bleeding. Now what about expired over-the-counter medications? If a pain medicine isn't too far past the date, it's probably okay. Studies show they can stay potent up to a year or two after their use-by date. But there are benefits to getting new supplies, such as up-to-date instructions or warnings, improved childproofing on the packaging, or more accurate tools to measure doses. And when it comes to measuring a dose of, say, cough syrup, be sure to use those little cups that come with the bottle. A study found that people who used a medium-sized spoon got too little, while, no surprise, those who used a large spoon took too much. Make it a point at least once a year to sit down with a doctor and go over a list of everything you take, including supplements. Some of them may not mix well together, or you might not need them anymore. But when you're on a prescription medication, never quit cold turkey. Take it as prescribed for as long as prescribed. Don't quit when you start to feel better. If it costs too much or has side effects you don't like, talk to the doctor. You may be able to find an alternative. Want to know more about how to read medication labels or foods and drinks that can interact with what you're taking? Check out the show notes. Hello, I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer. My guest today is my good friend, Michael Jai White. Many of you will know Michael from his role in Tyler Perry films such as Why Did I Get Married and the comedy drama TV series For Better or Worse, but I'm not sure if you know he holds at least seven black belts. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. As we've talked about over the years, martial arts is an activity that people often overlook when it comes to, to getting healthy. But there's a, a lot of different types of martial arts, and I, and I think people get overwhelmed by the choices. So c can you break down for our listeners some of the main forms and, and the benefits that they might offer them? Probably the most uh, popular form of martial arts is Taekwondo. Um, that's, you know, th those Taekwondo schools are in almost everybody's neighborhood. Uh, it's, um, it's a Korean martial arts, you know, it's a lot of emphasis on sport. It's very kid friendly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, outside of that, jujitsu, which has become extremely popular, uh, and that's you know, uh, it's like well, actually, Brazilian jujitsu okay. is super popular now. And how would you describe and, uh, that Brazilian jujitsu? No, jujitsu is more of a grappling type of thing. There are joint locks and uh, wrist locks and all of the, these type of things. It's kind of uh, considered ground fighting. It's pretty safe. It's it's kind of, you know, it's grappling like there's a wrestling element to it. And you go only as far as um, you're ready. Now, what, what, what are the health benefits that people might get from this? Well, with jiu-jitsu, as with any martial art, there's, um, of course, there's the uh, uh, the aerobic activity, and um, and really the great thing is, you know, you you're overcoming obstacles. You know, you there's a meditative aspect to it. There's, uh, you know, a uh, an aspect of you overcoming yourself, which is always your biggest opponent. Is you, you know, and so I mean, and there's a feeling that you you have after a martial art workout that's not not um, it's very unique to anything else, you know, because it's an individual effort, it's not a team type of thing. So every time you step on the the floor, you get better. How do you feel it's different than lifting weights or doing cardio? Well, it's it's pretty different because. There is a therapeutic aspect to it. it although you, you, you'll get that from um, doing aerobics and lifting weights to some degree. But when you are practicing striking, uh, when you're doing martial arts, it's kind of like it's like the ultimate in stress reduction. So why don't, why don't more people get engaged in martial arts, what, what do you think are the barriers or, or the, the common misperceptions that we have about martial I think arts? A, I think a misperception is that of, of, of brutality. Some people are afraid of, of that, of being injured, being hurt. Uh, and then a lot of people, at, you know, a lot of adults think they missed their chance. Right you know, when they're older. But I would say everybody could use you know, exercise and discipline. Mm-hmm. Discipline is the, the main component about martial arts. You're overcoming your obstacles. Again, your biggest obstacle is you. And when you apply that to the rest of your life, you become a winner. Is there a role for meditation in martial arts? Well, there's a lot of... Um, there are a lot of martial arts that have heavy into meditation. One of them is called Kyokushin. You begin and end every session with a, with a meditation. Uh, you, you learn to control your breathing or, you know, be aware of your breathing. Uh, there's imagery that you learn and the calmness of your mind. You know, that every time you're stepping on the floor, you're exercising that. Has martial arts changed your life? Martial arts has changed my life. It's been probably the most effective thing that's changed my life. Again, it is the discipline um, that I 
had to that that, that I de- developed from martial arts that taught me I could do anything if I set my mind to it. I want to thank you, Michael, uh, for taking the time and, and helping educate us all about the role that martial arts can play in our lives. Thanks for joining. Well, thank me. you. Thank, thanks for having me. All right, let's get to our tweak of the week. Make your own green cleaner. This is a great thing to do if you're working on spring cleaning and you want something that's super gentle and low cost. Get a spray bottle and fill it with one part white vinegar and nine parts water. Although this mix won't disinfect, it's good for everyday cleaning and will safely handle most surfaces and remove grease. If you're looking to make your own disinfectant, that's also pretty simple. Add a cup of bleach to a gallon of water. And for your own DIY bathroom cleaner, add two tablespoons of dish soap and two tablespoons of ammonia to one quart of water. You can use it on the tub, sink, floors, and shower. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.